You're about to hear a Lord's Day sermon that was preached at Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. This sermon comes from a series called That You May Believe. In this series, we take a long journey through the gospel according to John to discover who Jesus is and why it matters. We hope you enjoy this audio. Hear the word of the Lord from John 5, 1 through 14. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there, and knew that he had already been there a long time. He said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we have been in the book. If you're new to Sacred City or just jumping in, we've been preaching through the book of John uh, in the series called That You May Believe. And one of the things that makes John's gospel unique is that he gives lots of references to the miraculous, Jesus doing signs and wonders, and, and it talks about how people are gravitated, gravitate towards Jesus because of these signs and wonders. But John himself only uh, gives account of seven different miracles throughout Jesus's life and ministry. And what we have today is the, re- the third recorded miracle of John's gospel. So not that Jesus has only done three miracles up to this point, but this is the third one that John has included in his uh, account of Jesus's life and ministry. And as we look at it, I- I've come to the conclusion, this is, this is the perfect summer passage, okay? What we got here is Jesus hanging out by the pool. Pool Jesus. Right. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, so north of uh, the city gates, a sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonies. Now, you can hear this. It sounds great. I mean, you just imagine Jesus wearing the shades. He's got the Hawaiian T-shirt on, um, hanging out, chilling, putting his feet up, enjoying, you know, beach ball, bouncing around. But as you keep reading, you realize that it's not this kind of pool. This is not a leisure pool. This is not a fun pool. This is a, a quite a miserable pool. Look at this. Verse 3 goes on. It says, in, in, these, in these colonnades lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So what we see here is this isn't a leisure pool. This isn't a fun pool to be at. This is actually a pool of misery. You've got people we're sick, lame, blind, I mean, like all kinds of ailments. And they're all just sort of condensed into these five colonnades along the pool. And one comment, Calvin says this actually, he calls it a mournful spectacle. 
Right? You can imagine this in your mind's eye, this, just all kinds of people laid out, and really what, what the image should be, more than like a resort, more than even a public pool, this, this image resembles like Skid Row in L.A., like dirty street, I mean, probably Skid Row with less fentanyl, but Skid Row, like dirty, crowded streets, people in misery, um, ailments all over the place. And as you have this congregation of sick people, most of whom are immobile, uh, you factor in the heat, um, so they're sweating, they're immobile, people have to go to the bathroom, and so if you're immobile, you're really limited on what you can and can't do. So there's, there's a stench in the air. The heat doesn't help that anyway. Um, and you have these people that are just really in dire situations. And so you have this scene where it's nothing but misery. This is not a vacation spot. This is not somewhere that you would wanna take your family on a Saturday afternoon to go enjoy the pool. This is a place that most of the time you would wanna stay away from. Yet, there are so many people congregated here. We're told there's a multitude of invalids. And you might be wondering, like, why? Why are there so many people congregated here? If this is not a fun place to be, why is this the case? And you might think, well, of course, it's, we see Jesus there. And you think, Jesus shows up, and all of a sudden, everybody flocks to him. They've heard of his signs, his miracles. But that's actually not the case. People were here at this pool long before Jesus showed up. The reason why they're there is told to us in verse 4. Turn to your Bible. Look in your Bible right now. Look. Can you find verse 4? No. If you're looking through your ESV, it goes right from verse 3 into verse 5. But there is a footnote at the end of verse 3 that takes you down into the footnotes and talks about verse 4. Now, one of the things that it tells us is that... Um, Verse four was likely not an original part of this text. That's, that's the reason why it's excluded from the main body of the text. Um, in the earliest manuscripts, this, this sentence doesn't show up there. What, what's believed is that as you move away from the original audience or the, the original setting, the first century Jews, um, there had to be some kind of explanation provided for why the multitude is there. And verse four actually provides that explanation. So this may not be a, a God-inspired piece of text, um, but it is helpful for helping us figure out why everybody's gathered. So take a look at this down at the bottom. It says, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the waters. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So whether this is, whether this is some sort of folklore um, or even, you, you, there, I've been reading commentators who kind of contribute this to, or attribute this to um, a natural phenomenon of, of um, these currents that come in, natural currents with minerals that stir up, and then, you know, that, that. but really, I, I'm inclined to believe that this is actually true. This is like a thin spot in our world where supernatural things happen, where an angel of the Lord stirs up the waters. And, and, and part of this, of what makes me believe this, is because it's only the first person who gets in. Um, it's not like the first few people that absorb all the minerals. It's only the first person who gets in after the stirring that they get healed. And so I'm inclined to believe that, that actually the angel of the Lord stirs up these waters, and everybody around, like, that's why the invalids are there. They're thinking, like, hey, if we can be the first one in, we'll be healed. All, all of my ailments will disappear, and I can have a brand new life. They just all sort of bum rush for the. So the first one in gets healed, but everybody else 
you know, you hope that there's a lifeguard nearby because some of these people probably can't swim. Now, this is the reason why the pool is called Bethesda, or in other words, House of Mercy. This, this is a place of God's providential hearing. There's no explanation. There's no natural explanation for how just one person, the first person in, can jump in and be healed. I believe it's God providentially healing people in this pool. Now, this place, because of this, was a sick people magnet. You get all kinds of people. In fact, I would imagine that it's a large portion of um, Jerusalem's crippled community is hanging out here at this pool, looking for that. They don't know when it's gonna happen. They don't know what season or what time or what day or anything like that. They're just hanging out, waiting for the waters to be stirred up. And so you've got a lot of people drawn to this. And one of the, the people that's drawn to this is a man who we're introduced to today. A man who's been an invalid for 38 years. We don't know exactly what's wrong with him. It's, it's likely that his legs didn't work because he couldn't get himself into the pool. Um, he had some sort of restrictive condition and uh, had been like that for 38 years. Look at verse, verse five and six introduce us to him. One man who was there had been invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to them, so he, Jesus approaches this guy. He sees, he's been sick for 38 years, um, and it says that Jesus knew that he'd been there for a long time. Now, a lot of the commentators want to dismiss the supernatural fact of, of the water stirring and then like give Jesus credit for like supernaturally knowing, which Jesus could do that for sure. But it's just a juxtaposition between why eliminate this supernatural event and keep this one. But anyway... I, it says that Jesus maybe supernaturally knew that this man had been sick for 38 years and been there a long time. It could be the case that Jesus had that supernatural knowledge, but what's likely is Jesus was good at observation, um, that he saw this guy sunburnt, he saw this guy covered in dirt, smell, stench, and it was probably a dead giveaway that he had been there for a while. Now, as we get introduced to this guy, I've, you know, and all week long, I've wrestled with what to make of him. Uh, like, how are we to think about this guy? And as I unpack this for you, you might find yourself in this spot too. Because first of all, on, the, on one hand, and this is probably your first impulse, is to view this guy with sympathy. Um, he, he's infirm, he's got sickness, he's lonely, he's probably in a miserable state, he's likely homeless, right? He, he's just had a hard life. Life is already hard, and you tack on these long-term degenerative illnesses, and it just makes for a really, really tough life. So we look at that and say, yeah, I've got sympathy, compassion for this guy. But on the other hand, the more we get to know about this guy, the more I personally just don't like him the more I see him kind of as a, a sleazeball, as a ungrateful, like, man, bum, really. And, and not just like the fact that he's actually lame, but just, and here's why. There's evidence in this passage that points to the reality, specifically verse 14, where Jesus talks to him later, that this guy's predicament, his condition of life, has been caused by a specific sin or foolishness in his life. Whether, whether that was, you know, he was driving drunk on a donkey and fell off a cliff and now he's paralyzed or, you know, he, he's cutting corners at work and fell off a roof, right? Wasn't observing safety protocols. Well, I, we don't know what exactly it was, but there's reason to believe that he's responsible for how he got to that place in life. And, and there's a couple other things. You see his response to Jesus later on after he gets healed, which, spoiler alert, he gets healed. 
Um, and then later when we move to John 9, there's a, a comparison between this guy and another guy who's born blind and the disciples ask Jesus, like, whose fault is it that this man is blind? Is it his fault or is it his parents' fault? Who sinned? And Jesus said, neither one of them sinned. And so that tells us there are situations where suffering um, is happening that isn't necessarily directly connected to uh, a personal sin, but there are times where there are consequences that are. And I think that this man is a demonstration of that, that, that his, his situation is a product of his sinfulness or his foolishness. And what we have here is a guy that for 38 years has been sick, 38 years for a long time, has been laying by this poolside. Now, I know a lot of people with restrictions, physical restrictions, and they don't hold them back. It, like th Those things don't keep them from actually living. Like They find ways, they say, oh, sure, this is my lot in life, and it's definitely not the way that I would want it to be, but they still find a way to make the most of it. If you're, if you're given this, let's do what I can with this capacity. You don't see that from this guy. You see a guy who's in his... In his well, if, if you go back to the language of last week, in his desperation, he's just resigned. Right? He, he's not trying the radical. He's not prone to rashness, though it might seem like that to jump in a pool. But he, he sort of resigned to the poolside. And with this, like if we're just sort of reading the room, it's likely that he's gaming the system. See, there would be advantages to being a guy that's laid up by this pool at Bethesda. Now, it's not a, a, it's not a glorious existence by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it would be miserable, but there are certain perks to, to an invalid posting up here at this pool. One is they wouldn't have to work. They wouldn't have to find out what, use their agency to find what they're capable of. They just sort of post up and they rely on the generosity of other people that would give them clothes and money and goods and whatever they needed. They, they, they're relying upon the generosity of other people. So they don't have to get a job. They don't have to go to work. They don't have to punch a clock. They just get to lay there and people give them stuff. Now, the other part of this that would be sort of a consolation prize is that you're not alone. Um, not only are you there getting goods, but there's people all around you that are sort of in the same predicament that you can just sit there and gripe about life with. You can complain about how hard things are, and instead of actually doing something about it, you just air your grievances all day long. So it, there are perks to this kind of life. It's not glorious, but there are some consolation prizes that would make it seem that this guy is choosing to be there to some degree. Now, it's hard for us to know exactly this guy's intentions. It's hard for us to know exactly what this guy's outlook on life is. If he, if he really is sort of gaming the system or if he really is an innocent sufferer, it, it's hard for us to know. And part of it is we don't have the backstory. But there's enough for us to look at this and, and be a little bit suspicious of him. And while we don't know this guy's intentions, it's not explicit in this text, Jesus did. We're told earlier that Jesus has the ability to look at man and perceive what is in his heart, to know man for who he is. And I think this is why Jesus asked this man this strange question. He looks at him and he sees this sort of um, dishonest style of life, this, this life of resignation, and he asks him this, what seems like an obvious question in verse six. Take a look at it. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been laying there a long time, and he said to him, do you want to be healed? Well, duh, right? Do you want, like you ask somebody who's on life support, do you want to be healed? Like, yes, please. That, that's the thing that makes the most sense. Absolutely, we want to be healed if we're in a predicament like that, but 
Jesus asked this question. Now, why, why would Jesus ask him what seems like an obvious question? Now, it's not because Jesus needed consent to heal this guy. If it was God's will for this man to heal, Jesus would just do it. He's not asking for permission. Jesus, in asking this question, is poking at this guy's complacency. He's, he's, um, he's asking the question, are you in cahoots with misery or do you actually want your life to change? And you would think that this guy gives us immediate, yes, absolutely, response. I mean, before Jesus could even finish his question, you would think that's what's coming out of his mouth. But instead, in verse 7, he gives an excuse. He, look at this, verse 7. The sick man answered Jesus, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. So here we see, like, at one point, he probably tried. He says if somebody's cut in front of line, he probably tried to, to get in the pool. But he sort of resigned. He has nobody to help him. And he gives this excuse that I, I, this is just where I am. I'm stuck here. Now, all of this, to lay it like this, might make me sound like a heartless monster. Um, it, it might sound cynical to, to look at this guy through this lens. But the reality that we have to, to come to grips with is that not every sick person wants to be made well. Not every addicted person wants sobriety. Not every hurt person really wants healing. And this is probably the case here at Bethesda. You, you have people that have gone, grown accustomed to this. It's still a miserable lifestyle, but it's still something better than going out and trying. It's easier that way. There are all kinds of people who are there poolside just there to commiserate with their fellow invalids, that have no intentions of getting in the water, no intentions of trying to get well. And the reason for this, I think, is that when the rubber hits the road, to experience this kind of change in your life, to experience true healing, is such a profound and radical change, it's literally a brand new life. You, you have to relearn. It's like somebody who has a stroke, forgets how to walk, and now you have to relearn how to walk all over again. It's the same thing. It's hard work. These people, if they were to be healed, it's a new life, it's a new challenge, it's a new, I mean, new set of difficulties. And with that means they have to give up the perks. I mean, you call it perks. I mean, it's a kind of the comfort of the life that they knew to now jump into Man, they gotta get a job, they gotta find a place to live, find a way to contribute to society, a way to give back. Now, in some ways, the church is similar to the pool at Bethesda. The reality is that there are some people in churches this morning that have no desire to change. There are people, maybe even in this room, that are here, but when it comes to like, life, like whole life transformation, it's like, oh, I don't know. It sounds like a lot. We tend to like the ideas of our circumstances changing, but if, our circum if the thing that causes our circumstances to change is me changing, then, whew, that sounds like too much. Like if my heart has to have this radical, like it's, it's a total renovation of the soul. 
And I don't know, that's a lot to ask. And so you get people filling churches that want forgiveness. They love the idea of forgiveness, but have no desire to walk out repentance, right? To actually turn from their sin. You've got people in churches who want to hear these doting words of affirmation spoken over them. But they don't want to hear the words of conviction that poke them and cause them to turn away from futility. We want to be rid of our guilt, but we don't want to give up doing the things that make us feel guilty. And so you have people that come into churches and sit here and look for just that little thing, or at least give the appearance of wanting something, but really, I want to keep that stuff at arm's length. I don't actually want to be healed. I don't want Jesus to change my life totally. Now, that's not the the case for everyone. And I I don't think that's the case for the majority of this church at all. Because I do know that there are people here who really want to be transformed. There are people here that have, have... given their entire life over to Jesus, that it's Jesus is Lord of my entire life. People who, who when they open the Bible, they're not just reading the Bible, they're letting the Bible read them to, to, to bring conviction, the spirit to work in your heart in such a way that when you're poked, oh man, that's a sinful area that I need to deal with. You do so. You confess sin, you repent You live a life in community and on mission. Like There are people in this room that are giving themselves to this transforming work that Jesus aims to do with every believer. But here's what I've found, and I think this is true of myself. I know this is true of myself, and so it's likely true of you. It's, It's even the people who are eager to let Jesus transform their life, who say, Jesus, all my life is yours. Do with it what you want. There are still things that we want to hold back from Jesus. There are, there are holdout areas of my life, whether it's dealing with the secret sin of pornography or lust, a lack of generosity, gossip, grumbling, unforgiveness, a life that, that's stagnant when it comes to mission. Like, we want to hold those things back from Jesus and not let him actually transform us. We don't want him to actually confront the idols that we're worshiping instead of worshiping Jesus. See, if we really were to address some of these sins that we hold on to, that we just sort of like put up a wall around um, and, and hope Jesus doesn't notice the wall, things like grumbling, like, if we're actually to go in there and let Jesus deal with that. Grumbling is such a pervasive sin that we've all just kind of accept from one another. I, I'm, a, I'm a grumbler, folks. It's a sin. To stop grumbling, to really let Jesus into that area of my life or your life, means that I have to take responsibility for my contributions to the things that I want to grumble about. And I either need to use my agency my God-given capacity to change those things, to bring reformation, or I need to trust the Lord with it. I need to let him in. Either Lord, use me or give me contentment in this moment. Or what about unforgiveness? Another thing that often hums beneath the surface. See, if you really want Jesus to get in and, and get behind that wall you've built of unforgiveness, You have to relinquish that power that you have over somebody who's in sin against you or has committed sin against you. 
You have to relinquish that power and grant them forgiveness. I mean, you're probably still hurt. And so to, to entrust that to Jesus means that you let Jesus move in and bring healing and comfort in those places where your heart is wounded. But it also means being poked and prodded in a way where you remember the gospel that you have been forgiven tremendously. So you are able to forgive as Jesus forgives you. There are other, th- I mean, lust. If you wanna, wanna destroy that hidden, that, that walled off thing of lust that's going on, you have to break ties with that secret sin. You cannot leave it in the dark. You have to kill that. You have to, you have to get some accountability. You have to take practical steps to to safeguard yourself from that temptation. And instead of running to the filth of pornography or, or adultery, what you need to do is run to the arms of Jesus and find what you're looking for in him. Find that contentment, find that satisfaction. At God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. Don't don't go looking to cheap places for pleasures that are 24 karat gold that God intends to give you. I mean, I I could keep going. But all of these things that we tend to, yeah, Jesus, you're the Lord of my life, yet that thing I'm gonna keep to myself. And so there are people like me who say, yeah, Jesus, I want you to make me well, but don't touch that spot in my life. The thing is that Jesus changes everything. If Jesus is Lord, he is Lord of all. All the cosmos and all your life. Now, this is what Jesus is getting at with a sick guy. If, if Jesus shows up and heals this guy, he speaks these words of healing over him, his whole life changes. Jesus brings transformation. Everything changes with Jesus. His world is about to flip upside down and Jesus is asking, hey guy, are you sure you really want this? And we don't get a straight answer from him. We get an excuse. But we see is that Jesus heals him anyway. In verse eight and nine, it goes on. It says, Jesus says, um, Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. It's all it took. Get up, take your bed and walk. That's the kind of a power and authority that Jesus has. And at once the man was healed, and he got up, uh, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now this is what, again, coming back to what's perplexed me about this passage. You see a guy who his sin likely got him into this position. You see a guy that is kind of okay with a life of misery. You see a guy who gets healed. And there's no more dialogue. Jesus heals this man, and that's where the dialogue stops in that moment. There's no thank you. There's no worship, no gratitude. There's no profession of faith. This guy's just like, oh, cool, I can walk. Deuces, and then goes. That's it. And you think, of all of the people that are here under these colonnades, why did this guy get healed. Why did Jesus choose this knucklehead? I mean, you see the way that he responds to Jesus. I mean, his response, I mean, he does, Jesus tells him to get up and walk, and he does. So there's, there's that part of the response that's great, good for him. But I doubt that if Jesus hadn't said that, he wouldn't do it anyway. 
There's no thank you, there's no rejoicing, there's no rushing to tell people about Jesus. And you wanna know why there's no rushing to tell people about Jesus? It's because the guy doesn't even know Jesus' name. He didn't even ask him. Thank you, good sir. Thank you for healing me. You changed my life. What's your name again? Doesn't get it. Instead, he just walks off, goes back to Jerusalem. Now, let's, the story unfolds, and some of this we'll get to next week, but if you keep reading in, so we're told that this day was a Sabbath, which is gonna be a big deal to the Jews. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's a Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. They've created all kinds of these man-made laws to protect the, the fourth commandment, um, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. So they've created a bunch of extra rules to observe. Um, and so they're offended, not that he's breaking the fourth commandment, but he's breaking these extra rules. Uh, he says, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed on the Sabbath. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And so what you see here in this moment, he's kind of in trouble. He's in hot water with the Jews. They're like, what are you doing? You're breaking the rules. And he goes, not my fault. That guy healed me, right? He's the one, he's the real troublemaker, sort of shifts the blame, and it's familiar if you go back to Genesis chapter three, right? This blame shifting. And they said to him, well, then who's the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? They want, they want to dish out a punishment. And then it tells us in verse 13, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. He didn't know. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in this place. So you got this guy, gets healed, doesn't say thank you, doesn't even know Jesus' name, and he just bops off. Now, next week, we'll deal with the Pharisees. Again, these guys care more about these fake rules and the fact that a guy for the first time in 38 years is walking, right? They, they care more about the stupid rule than they do care about the, the miracle that they saw before them. But we see this guy, and his response is, he gets in trouble, he blames Jesus. He's in trouble with the Pharisees. Oh, that guy's fault. And later in verse 15, we didn't have it read today, but you see he goes back and he tattles on Jesus again to the Pharisees. So you're like, what is this dude's deal? <laughs> I mean, this whole thing just reeks of entitlement. It seems so ungrateful. I hope you're starting to see some of these layers come in in color here with this guy. He's not just this innocent you know, victim. Like, there's something wrong with this dude. There's something wrong in his heart. Now, as we see this, there's a lesson to be had here. As we see this man's uh, response to Jesus, like how he paid Jesus back for the healing that he received. And here's a lesson, is that you can imitate Jesus with good works. You can go and do good unto others as God has predestined for you to do. You can set out to love people the best you know how. You can set out to give them your time, your resources, to be a blessing to people. And they might receive that and return your good by treating you like junk. They might take advantage of you. They might smear your name. They might blame you for their problems. They might go on to do hurtful things, as we see this guy do to Jesus. Now, if this has ever happened to you, you know how unpleasant it is. Dang, it hurts. Right? You think you're doing something good, and then that, somebody lashes out at you. And when that happens, every fleshly fiber of your being wants to just lash out at that person. Don't you know what I did for you? Can't you see how I gave you grace? Can't you, right? you just want to put that person on blast, 
That's a sinful reaction that you have in your heart. What you had once, you know, whether it's sympathy, compassion, whatever you want to call it, you had that at one time. Now it's shifted into anger and malice. Now, now you can't even stand to look at that person. You're so upset. And we say to ourselves things like, man, if I knew that was going to happen, if I knew they were going to turn on me, I would have never done that for them. You've probably said that before. I know I have. I would have never done that. Bunch of jerks. And when you get in that spot, I'm not condoning that, by the way. That's my sin that needs to be dealt with. And when that happens, you feel that flare up in your flesh. That exposes just how lacking we are in grace compared to Jesus. Do you realize that? I mean, if you, it is impossible for you to be more compassionate than Jesus. You can't do it. In fact, if, if like there was a compassion meter and you said Jesus, you, you, he's like rocking 100%, you might be, maybe at 25, just if I had to speculate. Jesus has crazy amounts of compassion. And, and the crazy thing about this whole thing is that Jesus knew, Jesus knew that this was gonna happen. He knew that this guy was gonna respond the way he did and he decided to heal him anyway. Can you believe that? This guy was not the most deserving of the multitude. I, th I feel confident saying that. We see no profession of faith from him. We see no real gratitude expressed. I mean, I, this is speculation here, but there's, I don't know if we're gonna meet this guy in heaven or not. I, I don't know if he's saved. I, I know his body's been healed. But there's not, no indicator that he's gonna be there in heaven. He made no profession of faith. He, he didn't confess that Jesus is Lord. He, we don't have any of that. He might be. Maybe his life changed after this. I hope so. But we don't know. Now, at this point, it's like, maybe you're seeing the guy the way that I'm, I've been seeing him. He's just sort of, he's just a bad dude. He's not a good guy. And the hardest part of the story is when you see this guy and you see the layers of his imperfections and you stack them all up, the hardest part of the story is realizing that you are more like that guy than you want to admit. I am way more like that guy than what I want to admit. To admit that is embarrassing. It's shameful. To acknowledge the times when we don't want to turn away from our sin and repentance, but instead we... Uh, we we just kind of hunker down in our sin. Times where I don't want to be changed. I'm just cool with the status quo. I'm cool with sin eating me up in this area of life. I have no desire. Like we, we have that tendency with this guy too. We're content in our sin sickness. Or the times when Jesus blesses us. I mean like in ways that we can hardly even imagine. And even, even the ways that we overlook on a daily basis, where Jesus blesses you, and, and instead of responding with thanksgiving and gratitude and worship, you just walk away. You have this mentality, man, I deserve that. I worked hard to get that. Jesus had nothing to do with that good thing that happened to me. Or the times where you turn on Jesus, where you forsake him, whether it be for the sake of protecting your own comfort, I'm specifically speaking on mission of bearing witness to who Jesus is and what he's done in your life, right? We come in here and worship on Sunday mornings and, and we profess that Jesus is, is, he's changed our world, yet we get out there Sunday afternoon, Monday morning, nothing's changed. We're not telling anybody. 
The times where our tongues are, are, are kept from proclaiming what Jesus has done. We do it to protect our comfort, the idol of comfort, or, or our idol of, of our reputation, whatever it is. Man, we are so much more like this, like this guy than we want to admit. But here's the biggest thing. Here's the real kick in the teeth. The way that we are most like this guy is that we are undeserving sinners. See, the whole time I've been reading this passage this week, like, I've been fighting against the entitlement that wants to flare up in my belly. Like, oh yeah, I'm, at least I'm not a joker like this guy. I don't sin the way this guy does, so man, I'm maybe a little bit more deserving of God's grace. Listen, we don't deserve anything from God except judgment for the sins that you've committed, the sin, things you've, you've done that are wrong and the sins that you have left undone, the things, good things that you have left undone, that is sin, sin of omission, sin of commission. What we deserve is God's judgment. We don't deserve to be healed of our sin. We don't deserve God's grace. We don't deserve to be reconciled to God. We don't deserve salvation. We did nothing to position ourselves to become more deserving sinners. That There is no category of, of undeserving sinners and deserving sinners. It's just all sinners, and we're all undeserving. And this guy is in the camp with us. He's there as an undeserving sinner. But the kindness and mercy of God that works out in and through the person and work of Jesus, this man is healed. And in the same way, you find salvation. You find your eternity taking an incredibly bright twist from misery and darkness and destruction and underneath the weight of God's judgment for the sins that you've committed to now being credited with Christ's righteousness, forgiven of all those sins and credited with his righteous life that he lived because he went to the cross and bore your sins upon himself. And in this, as, as we uh, offload our unrighteousness and gain through faith Christ's righteousness, God brings us into a whole new existence. So new that, that it's, we're essentially new creation, new creatures. And we're given the Holy Spirit, who the, the third member of the Trinity, who actually lives inside of us now that helps us in this new life of faith that leads us in repentance and faith, that guides us into righteousness in this new life. See, the only way that we come to that is, is through the grace and mercy of God, not by anything that we've accomplished, not by our own entitlement. It's not by our work, but through the work of Christ's perfect obedience for us. Now, when you come to realize that, I think, well, I've experienced it. Your disposition towards that guy changes. You're no longer your nose up in the air toward him. Look at that. Look at that scum of the earth. Like, who's that guy thinking? He, it's, not, it's like, man, I was just like him. Totally undeserving. And when you come to realize that, it's so obvious. Man, so much of our attention, even this, in the sermon, has been focused on this guy and just how bad of a guy he is. 
But when you see what Jesus does and that he heals him, the spotlight goes to Jesus. The point of the story isn't how miserable this guy is. The point of the story is how glorious and gracious Jesus is. The point of the story is that Jesus is the hero. That his glory, his mercy, his grace outshines our misery. He deals with our sins. He took the initiative to rescue undeserving sinners like me and like you. And his compassion and grace outpaces our sin and foolishness. See, that's, that's like the compassion of Jesus. Just You can't imagine how much there is for us. And just as this man is healed by the compassion of Jesus, through the compassion of Jesus in his perfect life, his substitutionary death, we find total healing in him. Salvation. Now, as I land the plane here, there's one last question I want to ask. This is the big question here. Is that when Jesus shows you compassion, what do you do with it? Does Jesus just drop you know, like heal this guy and say, hey, go be on your way. Um, do what you want. I, don't worry about it. I healed your, healed your sicknesses. Um, you know, YOLO. Do what you want, bud. Do we squander it? Do we return to our old ways? Or is the compassion of Jesus meant to bring us to a new start, a new life? See, this is the thing about Jesus' compassion, and it's really important for us to hold both of these things together when we talk about biblical compassion. Jesus shows this guy an unprecedented amount of, of compassion. Uh, of, he's got sympathy for this guy. He's got grace for this guy. But at the same time, it doesn't recuse him to do whatever he wants. Jesus calls him to a life of responsibility. He calls him into this whole new life, and you see this in verse 14. When Jesus goes back, he's in the temple, um, and uh, let's see, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well. It stuck. The healing worked. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. He says, sin no more. Don't, Don't go back to your old ways that led you to this point. Sin no more so that nothing worse will happen to you. Jesus is calling him to a new trajectory, a new life. Now, it might be harsh to use this language of sin no more so nothing worse way, it sounds kind of threatening. Like, are you threatening me, Jesus? What? But really, this, is, this compassion met with a call to responsibility is the full biblical picture of compassion. This is, this is continuation, continuation of true compassion where Jesus, at times, there, there are gracious words or words that are, are the loving words that seem to be really great and uplifting, right? Get up, walk, be well. Great words, But there are some times where the hard words are the most compassionate words. There are some times where the hard words are the most loving words. The hard word in this is, hey, man, your sin got you here. Like, don't do what you were doing before. So the loving word is don't go back. Don't turn back. Don't be the dog that returns to his vomit. Go the new way. Jesus warns him. There's a warning in this. It's a, harsh, it's a harsh but loving word. He says, listen, if you go back to your old ways, the last 38 years of being a cripple will be like a vacation compared to eternity in hell.
Jesus shows compassion and calls him to personal responsibility. When God saves people, it's not just to get them into heaven later, right? Here's grace now, you've been forgiven of your sin, keep doing whatever you want, and then you've punched the ticket to get into heaven later. That's how a lot of modern Christians live. Like, I said the prayer once, and so I'm good, and I can keep doing whatever it is I wanna do, even though scripture prohibits that. That's how a lot of Christians live. But God saves people so that right here, right now, our lives would be changed. That that we would be transformed into the image and likeness of Christ, God's son, so that we would become more fit for heaven. Yes, God's moving us towards eternity with him, but in the meantime, God is changing us, he's transforming us, he's calling us out of sin so that we can walk righteously with our God here and now. Now, this is called the process of sanctification. And Philippians 2, 12 tells us that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're to walk out sanctification. Find, open ourselves up to the Lord so that, that he can get to work in those places that we've walled off, that we can become fully devoted followers of him. And we do this in response to Jesus. We don't do this to get Jesus' attention. It's a response to what Jesus has already done for us. See, the, the hurt man, the, the sick man got up, walked away. Like, in the same way we get up, we ought to obey Jesus. Actually, even, even a part of our obedience is just worshiping him. We get up, we worship, we give gratitude to the Lord for what he's done in our life. That's what Trent's rebuke was about this morning. Like, do you forget about the grace and the mercy of God has for us? We just come so numb to it. It's like, we, we've gotta be reminded. We gotta let, let the complacency, shake the complacency off. Be reminded of what Jesus has done and the mirac- miraculous work that he's done to bring us from death to life. We worship. We live on mission. Now, this guy, let me just, an aside, this guy is great confidence booster um, for life on mission because this shows us that even the most unlikely um, Convert the person who might be seemingly far away from God, has no interest in spiritual things, has no interest in hearing what the Bible has to say, God has grace for those people. Like God can, there's been a number of stories of people who are so far from God that God shows up, has grace for them, changes their life. See, who are you to say, oh yeah, that person's too far gone. God, there's no way God has grace for them. How arrogant. See, this should open us up. It's like share the good news with whoever. The, even the most undeserving sinners that you know, share the gospel. Tell them about Jesus. Jesus has grace for people you least suspect. It's true of all of us, isn't it? Now, the last thing, when Jesus says to this guy, go and sin no more, he's placing a calling upon his life. He's calling him to righteousness. And righteousness doesn't happen by accident. You don't just wake up morning and like, hey, I feel more righteous today than I did yesterday. Like it, it, it's, a, it's a work, it's a participation with the spirit. This, this call to sin no more uh, is impossible in your own strength. Like if you're just gonna white knuckle your obedience, you're gonna find the end of yourself very quickly. You're gonna find that your flesh fails. No matter, no matter how uh, determined of an individual you are, no matter how resolute you are, no matter how disciplined you are, you are eventually going to fail 
at saying no to sin. You're eventually going to find yourself right back at the vomit pile. But by the power of God, channeled through the indwelling Holy Spirit, we have the spiritual power, not in our us, not, not in me, but Christ in me, to say no to sin, to walk righteously, to kill our sin. And it's the Spirit that works to renew us. And as God changes us, he sends us to change the places and the people around us. See, if, if we really want to make disciples, plant churches, renew the city, the change starts with your heart. The change starts in, in seeing the places of sin that, that need repentance, that need to turn and receive the grace and mercy from God anew so that your worship will be re-inflamed, so that mission will be just more of a natural impulse, not something that you got to do to check a box, but the overflow of joy that comes from the gospel just spills out towards other people. As Jesus renews us, he's aiming to renew our city. And this morning, as we come to the Lord's table, we recognize that this meal, there's something strange about this meal. Like strange, not in like a fishy, something suspect way, but something mysterious about this meal. It's one of the two sacraments that the church has. Um, baptism is, is recognition of entry into the church the Lord's Supper is observation of par continued participation in the church. As we come to the Lord's table, we're, we're called to, to eject the sin from our hearts, to repent of sin, and to receive God's grace anew, to remember that Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed for you, for our sins. And as we receive, receive the mercy and forgiveness of God, not only do we receive that, but we're reminded that as we take and eat, like this, it's, such a, it's like a little nibble, but this little nibble, there's something, this is the mystery of it. There's something profound that happens that fills us up spiritually. It's a reminder of the spirit of God indwelling in us. The power of God is at work in us now. That as we leave here, we go, not as this guy who just zips his lips about Jesus, but a guy who goes, and woman, who goes and proclaims the goodness of God and how he's saved an undeserving sinner like us. This meal pushes us out on mission. So as we come to the Lord's table today, I want to invite you to, to remember that repent of sin, turn to Christ, receive his grace, and be ready to be released into the world to proclaim Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness, your mercy. We didn't deserve it. There's nothing that we've done. There's nothing that we can do. We are simply in need of you. There's no way for us to get in the pool of salvation. There's no way to jump in. There's people who would beat us to it but you are the gracious savior who comes after us, who meets us right where we are in our midst. And I pray, Lord, that even if there's somebody in here today who doesn't know you yet, it can get a sense of, of this Christ who comes into the world, this, who left heaven to redeem undeserving sinners. God, will you make yourself known to us this morning? And in this meal, would you strengthen us for the ministry that you've called us to, for your glory and for the joy of all people. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.